Church, you guys sounded good in the first half of that service. Give yourselves a round of applause. Let's do that. Let's do that. That was fantastic. Don't tell the 915, but you're way better than they were today. Uh, hey, welcome to Center Church. Happy Memorial Day, Memorial Day weekend. We're grateful that you're here. My name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. Um, I know that summer doesn't officially begin until June 21st, but we all know that it unofficially begins this weekend, right? So I hope you have lots of plans uh, for your summer. But when you came in, there was a card on your seat. Just says, Summer at Center. Summer at Center. This has got a bunch of the things going on this summer at our church that we want you to know about. So we've got some opportunities on here to build relationships. Uh, with other families. We've got our weekender dates, baptism Sundays, all kinds of good stuff that's going on this summer at our church. So I'll let you read that. But I wanted to point you to one event on there in particular that's kind of the bump out here, and that's Serve the City. Okay, Serve the City. If you are here last week, you heard me explain this, but maybe you weren't. So let me give you a quick recap. Um, if you read through the Gospels, one of the things you'll notice about Jesus's ministry is that he was very aware of the physical needs that surrounded him. So he proclaimed the gospel in word. That was his primary mission, but he also demonstrated the gospel in deed. So he would heal the sick. He would minister to the hurting. He would feed the hungry. And he would often do that as an illustration of the spiritual principle that he was teaching. Well, I told you last week that as a church, we wanna be characterized by that same spirit. We wanna proclaim the gospel in word. We also wanna demonstrate the gospel in deed in our community and serve the city is one of the major ways that we do that. So on Saturday, June 17th, Saturday, June 17th, we have worked with local nonprofits to create hundreds of volunteer opportunities for you and your family so that you can go on the website, you can pick the one that works best for you. We've got indoor projects, outdoor projects, we've got kid-friendly projects, and it's an opportunity for you to take a part of your day to demonstrate the love of God to our community, okay? It, we've done it three years now, it's been awesome, it's been growing, and here's what's really neat. We're starting to develop a reputation for this, okay? So we reached out to some of our nonprofits partners this year, and they were like, oh, please come back and serve us. They are like, you guys were awesome. Your people were awesome. We would love to have Center Church people come and help us. And I thought, man, that is what we're after. We want to be a strong light in this community that people say, you know, I'm not sure I believe yet what you believe, but I can't deny how you love me. And that's what we do every year through Serve the City, okay? It's, sun, or it's Saturday, June 17th. You can find all the details, the projects. You can grab your volunteer slot at centerseville.com backslash STC. Okay, now you might be wondering, but Josh, I'm out of town that weekend, okay? I'm going to the beach, or I'm going to the lake, or I'm going to the river, or I'm going to some body of water. That's all anybody does, right? Maybe you're a mountains person, I don't know. Anyway, you're like, I'm not gonna be here this Saturday. Is there a way that I can participate? And the answer is yes, okay? We're gonna also be conducting some supply drives for these nonprofits in our community. And so if you're not gonna be here on the 17th, you can still participate that way. We're gonna have all the details about those supply drives next weekend, okay? Man, we're really excited about Serve the City. It's a big part of our heart for our city. It's I hope you'll join us in serving. So let's pray for that, and then we're gonna jump into Colossians 3, okay? God, thank you that uh, you came as a servant. Lord Jesus, you said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and because you served, we are saved, and now we wanna be the kind of people that serve others. So would you give us grace to do that? Would you bless, serve the city? I pray that it would strengthen our witness in this community, it would point people to your love for them, and it would help us to become more like you. God, as we look at Colossians 3, would you give us ears to hear what you have to say? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Colossians chapter three, starting in verse 12. Colossians three, starting in verse 12. So Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul from prison to a young church in the medium-sized town of Colossae. The town of Colossae was not really probably much bigger than Charlottesville. Uh, and the, the book of Colossians has four chapters, okay? In the first two chapters, here's what Paul does. He reminds them of what is true of them in Christ, okay? He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you have been raised to life in Christ. 
You were a part of the kingdom of darkness, but now you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. You were orphans, and now you've been adopted as sons and daughters. You didn't have the spirit, now you have the spirit. You, will, you were guilty, now you're forgiven. You were condemned, now you're justified. He goes on and on and on. This is your identity. And then in chapter three, here's what, here's what Paul does. He pivots and he says, now let your new identity inform your activity. In other words, Paul says, be who you are. <laughs> Be who you are. You have been made righteous and holy and blameless positionally in your relationship with God. Paul says, now work that out practically in your day-to-day life. Tracking with me? Chapters one and two, this is who you are in Jesus positionally. Chapters three and four, let your identity inform your activity. And we all know that when your identity changes, your activity needs to follow, right? So for instance, when you graduate from college, you need to stop acting like a college student, right? Like that is some of our problems here. You're 28, no more college student, all right? Like you're out in the real world. Okay, here's the thing. When you get married, if you keep acting like a bachelor, it's not gonna go well, okay? Like new identity, new activity. Um, This came home to me once in college. I I played college football. So I would like hang out with the football guys on Saturday night till about 10 o'clock when things would get really, really crazy and then I'd leave. Um, But I remember one time hanging out with the football guys and I look out on the deck and there's our 45 year old offensive line coach and it was like everyone is uncomfortable right now like why is the 45 year old guy hanging out with all the college girls this is weird right like we just understood look man your identity is no longer college students so get out of here like this is this is just strange we understood that it was inappropriate and it was weird for him to be there well Paul's kind of saying like hey just like it was inappropriate for my offensive line coach to be at the college party it's inappropriate for someone who has been raised to new life in Christ to continue living like they're part of the world. Okay, that's kind of what Paul is saying. So here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna remind us again of our identity in Christ because he always wants to come back to that. And then he's gonna give us two activities to pursue or to put on that, that flow from our identity. So he's gonna say, this is who you are in Christ. Now this is how your new identity should inform your activity. Okay, look at verse 12 with me. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Last week, Paul gave us some things to put off. This week, he gives us some things to put on, okay? Uh, That's the Christian life. If you're gonna grow in Christ, it's gonna be yes to some things and no to other things. It's gonna be putting off some things, it's gonna be putting on other things. And notice that the phrase put on is an active phrase, right? Put on means you're gonna have to do this, right? Just like clothes don't just appear on your body, the attributes of Christ don't just appear in your character, right? Like there's an active participation with the Holy Spirit if we're going to put these things on. But before Paul tells us what to do, he once again reminds us who we are in Christ, right? Remember, identity always precedes activity in the Christian life. Identity always precedes activity in the Christian life. If you don't remember anything else from the entire series of Colossians, I hope that is burned into your brain and imprinted on your heart. You don't put these things on to become a Christian. You put these things on because by grace, you already are one. Okay, and Paul is going to highlight three aspects of our identity in Christ. So if you're in Christ, this is true of you right now. Number one, in Christ, we are chosen. We are chosen. Now, being chosen is one of the great desires of the human heart, isn't it? I mean, starting in middle school, what you've been worried about since sixth grade is, do the cool kids like me? Right, and we all have different cool kids, but we all have cool kids, okay? And we all want them to like us, and you become 35, and you realize, like, I am exactly how I was emotionally as a sixth grader. You know, like, this is, this is where I am. Um, right, we, we have such a desire to be chosen that we hate being rejected, right? Everyone hates the feeling of rejection. That's why suddenly we'll change how we talk and how we behave to be accepted in an environment. You ever notice yourself doing this? It's like you've got the way you talk and behave at work, and you've got the way you talk and behave in your family, and you've got the way you talk and behave 
you know, at the gym. And you actually know how comfortable you feel with a group of people based on how little you modify how you talk and behave. You ever thought about that? It's because we hate rejection. We hate feeling not good enough. We hate feeling on the outside. And that's because in our hearts, we are created to be accepted by God, right? That's why we have that longing. And here's, here's what Paul is saying. Guys, in Christ, you're chosen. Ephesians chapter one, verse four says that God chose you before the foundations of the earth were laid. That means that there has never been a moment that you have not been known and loved and chosen by your creator. Think about that. You maybe, you maybe haven't been chosen by anyone else. You maybe have been rejected by people that you care a lot about in this life. But if you are in Christ, you are chosen by the one who matters most. And the best way to battle against peer pressure and the best way to battle against people pleasing and the best way to stop caring so much what he thinks or they think or she thinks or culture thinks is to remind yourself day after day that the most important person in all of creation loves me and chose me. And you're chosen. Paul goes on and says, you're holy. In fact, you're holy because you're chosen. You see, the word holy doesn't mean perfect. The word holy means set apart by God for God. That's what the word means. So it's often used of utensils in the Old Testament. So, uh, you know, they'd be talking about the forks and the fire pans and the saucers of the temple, and they were called holy vessels. And that meant that they were, they were designed with God's design, and they were only to be used for God's purposes. So, for example, you didn't take a, you know, a vessel from the temple and use it to have lunch on in your house, right? That would be to treat that vessel inappropriately, okay? To, to be holy means to be significant. It means to be special. It means to be set apart. And in Christ, that is what you are. In Christ, that is what you are. You are significant, you are set apart, and you are special. God has pulled you out of the world. He has set you apart from, from the world for himself and his purposes. Now, the opposite of holy, the opposite of treating something as holy is to profane something. To profane something means to take something that's holy and special and significant and treat it like it's common and treat it like it's worthless. And, and you've probably been treated that way. I don't, I don't know if, if it was a boss or a friend or a, or a parent or a loved one, someone that, that should, have, should have strengthened you and should have reminded you of your holy, set-apart nature in Christ, but instead they've made you feel common and worthless. And you might think that about yourself because of something you've done, because of something that's been done to you. But what Paul is saying is, guys, you're holy. You are set apart by God and for God. Finally, Paul says, we are beloved. We're beloved of God. The word beloved simply means a much-loved person. And that's who you are in Christ. This is, this, is, this is radical. In Christ, God knows you entirely and loves you completely. Knows you entirely, knows every one of your thoughts, motives, and actions, and loves you completely. Friends, that is the ultimate foundation for self-image. Allow me to quote Tim Keller, a great man of God who passed away last week. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Because the whole time you're like, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't, you wouldn't love me this way. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. It's, okay, you, you've searched me out, you know who I am, you know that I'm broken, and you don't want me. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. I would suggest to you that if you actually believed at the heart level that you are fully known and fully loved by God, it would change everything about you. The problem is I don't believe it at the heart level, and you don't either. And that's the reason that we care so much about what people think about us. 
And that's the reason that we have a such, such a hard time trusting God. We don't actually think he really loves us. He doesn't really have our good in mind. We have a hard time trusting him. It's, it's why we are so tempted to grab control of our lives. Right? It's why we struggle with, with so many things because at the heart level, we don't really believe that God knows us entirely and loves us completely. And my prayer is that through the sermon and, and, and through the ministry of this service and through the ministry of this church, that over time, you and I would start to believe in our hearts what is already true of us theologically, that we are known and that we are loved. So that's what Paul is saying. Guys, this is your identity in Christ. This is your identity, chosen, holy, beloved. And this is how his argument proceeds. Now strive to be practically what you already are positionally. This is what you already are in Christ. Now let's put these behaviors on that flow from this identity. And Paul's gonna give us, man, two behaviors to put on. Here's number one, put on the love of Christ. Put on the love of Christ. Because you are chosen and holy and beloved, put on the love of Christ. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Every one of those characteristics is a characteristic of love, which is why later in verse 14, Paul's just gonna say, all of this is bound up in love. Now, here's what you'll notice if you're reading carefully. Every one of those characteristics is expressed in relationship. Do you notice that? You can only be patient in a relationship. You can only be kind in a relationship. You can only be compassionate if you're in a relationship. When Paul wanted to give us a list of qualities and characteristics that express the love of Christ, he gave us relational actions. Here's what that means. You cannot be holy by yourself. You can't. I'm not saying like you can't grow in your character by yourself. You can probably do that. According to Paul in this passage, you, can't, you, you don't even know what you are until you have people. Have you ever noticed that you got way less patient when you got married? Has that happened to anybody else? Has anybody else been like, you know, I didn't used to struggle with anger and then I had children, you know? And then you're like, and I've got these four little blessings from God and they drive me crazy, you know? And they draw out, what, was that not there before? No, it was there. There was just no one that was drawing it out of you, right? Anybody have that person in your extended family that can draw out all the worst things in you? You know what I'm talking about? You're like, they're here right now, Josh. Stop talking about it. This is uncomfortable, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, it's like, it's not that that stuff isn't there. It's just relationships kind of pull it out of us. And so what Paul says is, hey, when you put on the love of Christ, you put on the love of Christ in relationship. You can't be holy by yourself. You can't. Now, like a, like a wooden religious view of holiness, right? Like, I don't know, like old churches and, and, you know, crotchety people, like that view of holiness is all about like a checklist. It's like do's and don'ts. And like, that's, that's actually pretty easy. Like a lot of people can do that. But biblical holiness is much more relational. It's much, it's much deeper and it's much harder. Because it's one thing for me to be like, well, I can just not do these six things and come to church for 45 minutes and come back next week for 45 minutes, never interact with every, anyone and like insulate myself from frustrating people. Look how patient and kind I am. It's like, no, you just don't know anyone and you don't interact with anyone. But all of a sudden you start, you start interacting with people. It's like, ah, I don't actually have this as much as I thought I did. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, all of these qualities work themselves out in relationships. Love is the summation of every one of these characteristics, which is why in Matthew 22, when a lawyer came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, there are 613 commands in the Old Testament, which is the most important. Jesus very quickly answered, oh, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And he said, and I'll give you a bonus answer. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, then all of these things take care of themselves, 
right? When you have experienced the love of God as a chosen one, as a holy one, as a beloved one by grace, all of a sudden you're filled with the love of God towards other people. Which is why in verse 14, Paul says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Okay, love, simple enough. Well, what does it actually look like? What does it actually look like to love? Well, that's what Paul is gonna tell us in these verses. He's gonna give us these characteristics. He's gonna say, if you wanna know how loving you are, just look at these characteristics and then you'll see. All right, here's, here's the first a way that love manifests itself, compassionate hearts, compassionate hearts. Compassion means to feel concern for other people. Um, so some versions translate it uh, tender mercy. That might be what it says in your translation. Um, when something is tender, it means it's sensitive to the touch. So I was working in my yard yesterday and I unearthed um, a nest of wasps in the ground and uh, I got stung and I'm feeling a little tender this morning, okay? Like I was like, ah, I know where that is, right? That, that's what it means to have a compassionate heart. It means you're sensitive to the suffering of others. It means you feel the suffering and the hurt of the people around you. So that when you even just, you can kind of sense it. Compassionate people can say, like, you doing okay? Like, hey, I know things are really hard at work. Can we talk about that? Like, I know your cousin is, man, is, is really sick. Can we, man, can I pray for you? Right, it's just kind of this, this heart of compassion towards other people. Um, compassion is often referenced in the gospels as the motivation for Jesus's actions. Okay, so for instance, in Matthew chapter nine, compassion led him to send out his disciples to minister to the crowd. Later in Matthew chapter 14, compassion led him to heal the sick. In Matthew 15, compassion led Jesus to multiply the bread to feed the hungry. It was compassion in Luke chapter 10 that led the good Samaritan to help the man who was in the ditch. It was compassion in Luke 15 that led the father to run out and embrace his prodigal son. Compassion. Now the opposite of a compassionate heart is what's called a hard heart. A hard heart is when we don't feel concern for the pain and the suffering and the trials around us, or we're not willing to enter into it, but instead we insulate ourselves from the struggles of others. And honestly, that's what pop psychology urges us to do. Um, pop psychology says like, hey, remove anyone or anything from your life that doesn't serve you, right? That doesn't help you be the best version of you that it can be. And you know what? It's a lot easier to sell the term self-care than it is to sell the term hard-hearted. They're the same thing. <laughs> Right, self-care isn't all bad. I'm not saying it's all bad, but like when we use self-care to just be like, I don't wanna be around anyone that's hard, it's like, oh, the Bible would say that's, that's hard-heartedness, right? Instead, what, what are we called to do as believers? We're called to feel the compassion of God towards us. I mean, what did Jesus do? He, he saw our plight and it moved him to action. And then we're called to show that compassion to other people. Okay, here's the next one, kindness. And kindness is connected to compassion. I would define kindness as the action that compassion produces, the action that compassion produces. So um, ancient writers define kindness as the virtue of a man whose neighbor's well-being was as important as his own. Whose neighbor's well-being was as important as his own. And again, Christ is the ultimate example of this. Christ felt compassion in heaven and that led him to come to earth. Christ wasn't just up in heaven being like, oh man, I feel so bad for him, right? But, but he took on flesh. He came to the world and he did something to give us hope. He came and he saved us. Right, that, that's why we do serve the city, because serve the city is one, full, one long day of kind acts is what it is. Because here's the thing, guys, do you know what compassion sounds like? Here's what compassion sounds like. We have a city vision. We wanna bless this community. We want this community to be better because we're here, and if we're ever gone, we want them to mourn this. We wanna love our city. You know what kindness looks like? We're actually doing something. Like, oh, actually, we actually wanna help the pregnancy center. I actually wanna help this Title I school. I actually wanna help the Salvation Army. I actually wanna help Stepping Stones. I actually wanna help Single Bombs. Compassion is great, but compa do, you know what you, do you know what you call compassion divorced from action? You call it millennials. That's what you call it. All the millennials are so mad at me right now. 
It's true. It's true. Like every millennial in the world wants to retweet everything and not do anything, right? And yet, like what we're called to do is to feel compassion that leads to action, right? And that's what, that's what Serve the City is. It's, hey, compassion that's leading to action. I'm a millennial, okay? If you're a millennial, I love you, okay? Anyway, all right, here's the next one, humility. Humility is the next expression of love. And we gotta think about this one for a second because humility feels the most inward, right? Like humility feels like the most just straight character quality. Um, but here's how it works out in love. Humility is not, it's not self-exaltation and it's not self-deprecation. It's just like thinking of ourselves soberly. Like just having like an accurate view um, of ourselves. You know, if you ever looked at, this is helpful exercise. Sometimes you can just look in a mirror and you can be like, I didn't create me. You ever done that? I don't sustain me. You ever thought about that? Like you ever thought about like any number of things that if they changed just a little bit, we would all die. You ever thought about that? You're like, if, if oxygen was this, or if, like if the sun was that. It's like, it's, it's amazing how fine-tuned creation is that we can flourish and that we can grow. Um, some of you are really, really good at your jobs. Like we have people that are in healthcare and business and education and, uh, and finance. And I mean, you, it's amazing. Like just talking to you, we have some incredibly gifted people here. Do you know why you're so good at your job? Because God gifted you that way. I'm sure you've worked hard and I'm sure you've gone to school, but like, think about it. Did you give yourself your IQ? Right? Did you choose that you were gonna be born to your family in this country, in this century? Like, if you were born in Nepal in the 1500s, do you think you'd be where you are? I wouldn't be. This came home to me, um, like how much of a gift uh, life is when I was um, playing college football. So I was like a division three college athlete. Had a great experience, but I was not like a division one college athlete. I wasn't gonna go pro. Do you know when it was decided that I was not going to be a professional athlete? In my mother's womb. That was when it was decided. It was like, I'm five nine. You know, it's just like, it's not happening. It's just not going to happen. It's just, humility is just receiving life as a gift. Uh, it's famously been said, and I think it's helpful, that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. And that's how it's connected to love. Because when I'm full of pride and when I'm full of arrogance, when I'm constantly thinking about me and what people think of me and how I'm doing at work and if I'm pursuing my dreams and if I'm getting what I have, you know what there's no space for? There's no space in my mind and my heart for other people. There's no space in my mind and my heart for like considering how other people are doing and expressing love. But when I, have a, when I have an accurate view of myself, man, I'm not that impressed with myself. I'm not, you know, exalted. I'm not deprecated. And it creates space for me to think about others and to help me love them. All right, the next one is meekness. Meekness is a rich biblical word that we have a really hard time understanding. Um, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But I had a football coach who would routinely yell, the meek don't inherit anything, the strong do. Right, he was a caricature of a human being. You ever met somebody like that? You're like, you're exactly what a defensive line coach would be if it was a cartoon book. Like that's what he was. That's what he was, and he would run around yelling that all the time. Um, and the reason he yelled that was because he misunderstood what the what the biblical word meekness means. He thought meekness meant weakness. And like, yeah, you're not gonna be very good at football if you're weak. Because that's not what the word means. The the Greek word translated meekness means power under control or strength under direction. Power under control or strength under direction. It was used to describe a bit and bridle in a horse's mouth. It's what allowed the incredible power and strength of a horse to be directed towards productive purposes. So Moses was called the meekest man on earth in the Old Testament. What did Moses do? Well, he stood up to the most powerful ruler on planet earth, Pharaoh, and then he led one of the greatest liberation movements of all time. He was a meek man, he was not a weak man. Meekness and weakness are different things. Jesus is the most powerful man who has ever or will ever exist, strong enough to rebuke demons and to command the storms. 
And yet he described himself as lowly and gentle and meek. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control or strength under direction. I think the reason that power and strength scares us in our culture is because there is so little meekness in our culture. Power looks very dangerous to us because we've seen people use it in abusive ways, right? And so we often think like power and strength is bad and weakness must be the goal. But guys, meekness is the virtue that allows us to channel our strength and channel our power towards love of other people. I'll be really transparent and honest with you. Women, you don't want a weak husband. You want a meek one. You, you don't want a weak pastor. You want a meek one. You don't want a weak supervisor at work. You ever had that guy? And you're like, oh my gosh, like he just can't get his act together and he's not leading us well. And we don't know what we're doing. And it's super frustrating. You don't want a weak supervisor. You want a meek one who's not gonna be domineering, who's not gonna be harsh, who's not gonna be self-serving. You don't want weak children. You wanna send your children out into the world weak? Is that what you want? No, you wanna send them out meek. You wanna send them out strong and powerful and under control. So let me say, men, do not be weak, be meek. Women, do not be weak, be meek, right? We don't need a whole bunch of weak people in this church. By God's grace, what I'd love to see is a lot of meek people in this church. People who use all of their God-given ability, God-given assets, God-given resources under control for the good of other people and the glory of God as an expression of love. Right, what we want is meekness, not weakness. Next, last one in this list is patience. Okay, patience doesn't come naturally, right? Everybody knows that. Uh, that's why Paul says, put it on. Now, imagine I got up here today and I said, guys, I have a confession to make. I am very proud, harsh, and unloving. You'd be like, gee, this is a weird church, you know? Like, it'd be very uncomfortable, right? But if I got up here and I was like, guys, I gotta tell you, I gotta be honest. I'm a little bit impatient. You'd be like, ah, oh, it's all right, man, you know? Me too. I broke the speed limit to get here this morning, you know? Right, that's because we have a, we have a misunderstanding of patience. Did you, did you know that the very first quality of love listed in 1 Corinthians 13 is what? Patience. I gotta get your business for just a second. You know what that means? If you, if you would be like, yeah, I'm an impatient person, what you're saying is I'm not a loving person. We don't wanna admit that. And yet, I mean, I don't know what else to do with that. Like according to the Bible's definition of love, the first characteristic is patience. So if like, I'm not patient, I'm not loving. Patience is the fourth fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. So that means if the spirit's at work in me, if the spirit is working through me, then patience is gonna be one of the characteristics. Second Peter 3 says that God's patience is the reason that we have hope. Peter says, hey, God, God is patient, desiring that none should perish, but all should come to repentance and faith. So patience really matters. Now, what's interesting is the word, you know what the word patient, where it comes from? It comes from the Latin word that means to suffer. You ever wondered why you're called a patient at the hospital? That ever, you ever wonder that? You're like, I thought it's because it took so long. No, it's, that's, that's not why it's called, sorry, healthcare people. You guys do a great job. Um, I'm making everybody mad today. Millennials, healthcare workers, who else? That's like our whole church right there, millennial healthcare workers. Um, <laughs> All right, now you're called a patient because you're the suffering one. That's, what, that's where the word comes from. Um, patience defined actually means this, the ability to tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. That's what it actually means to be patient. And here's what you know, here's what I know. Loving people requires patience. 
Because if you're gonna love your spouse, if you're gonna love your kids, if you're gonna love other people in this church, if you're gonna love your coworkers or extended family members, man, it's either, sometimes they're gonna do things that delay you, that trouble you, and that hurt you. And you're gonna have to have the resolve of patience to continue loving them, even though it's really difficult to do. Where does that come from? Man, it comes from thinking about the patience of Christ towards me, right? The long suffering of Christ towards me, the pain that Christ endured so that I could be forgiven so that he could love me. Right, when we see the patience of Christ towards us, it motivates us to be patient towards others. All right, verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So in verse 13, Paul starts talking about how the love of Christ expresses itself in conflict, okay, in conflict. Here's the reality. A bunch of sinners saved by grace can't live together in a fallen world without there being some conflict, okay? That's just, that's just true. Um, this is true in your marriage, it's true in family, it's true in friendships, it's true in this church. So here's Paul's big idea. Forgiven people, forgive people. Forgiven people, forgive people. When you've experienced the forgiveness of God towards you, you'll express forgiveness towards others. Kind of his big idea. Um, and Jesus told a parable to this end in uh, Matthew chapter 18. He said there was a king uh, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And so he called a servant in and the servant owed him 10,000 talents, which today would be the equivalent of $20 billion. Okay, it's a lot of money. And the king says, pay your debt. And you're like, how does this guy even make this debt? I don't know. Anyway, and the servant says, I don't have the money, but give me more time and I'll pay you back, which is ridiculous. It didn't matter how much time the guy had. He wasn't making $20 billion. Um, and he was gonna, his fam he and his family were gonna be sold into slavery, probably separated from one another to pay this debt. But the text says that the king had pity or compassion on the servant and said, hey, because of my compassion and my pity, I'm actually gonna absorb your debt. Even though you owe me 20 billion, I'm gonna forgive it, I'm gonna absorb it, and you can go free, and your family's life will never be the same. And so you've gotta imagine the servant goes out of that place, just I, everything is different. I'm sure he's been worried about this. My family's gonna stay together. I'm gonna get to watch my kids grow up. Like The horizon is totally different than it was when I went in there. And Jesus says, then the guy forgiven $20 billion runs into another servant who owed him money. And that servant owed him 100 denarii, which was about $30,000. So it's like, that's still a lot of money, but it's, I mean, you know, nothing compared to 20 billion. And the, the 20 billion guy says, hey, give me my money. And the 30,000 guy says, I don't have it. And he starts doing the same thing to this guy. And he's like, I don't have it, but like, I'll get it for you. And he maybe actually could, you know, it's like 30, that's a lot of money, but you could maybe make that. And he's like, hey, you know, I know. And then the, the guy forgiven 20 billion says no and had him thrown in prison until he paid every single penny of his debt. Now at this point, Jesus' audience is like rolling their eyes. They're like, come on, man. They're like, there is no way that someone who was just forgiven $20 billion would then throttle a guy that owed him $30,000. That just doesn't make any sense. And Jesus' point is, exactly, exactly. When you realize how much you've been forgiven by God, you express forgiveness to others. When you realize that you're the 20 billion guy who's been forgiven that by God, that he absorbed that debt, then it empowers you to forgive those who owe you. Now, I'm not saying that what's happened to you is not a big deal. I know some of you have been hurt in some really, really significant ways. I've talked to you about it. I've been hurt in some pretty significant ways in the last year. $30,000 is a lot of money. It's a big debt. Christ isn't saying your hurt is small. He's saying what you've been forgiven of is great. And guys, when we press into that, that we are forgiven by God, and when we see how much we've been forgiven of, 
It gives us the resources to forgive others even when they've hurt us in really significant ways. It gives us the resources to expel bitterness and from our lives and to walk as forgiven people who are forgiving people. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love really is the summary of all of these in a way. That's why I made it the point. It's kind of all of these describe what love is. And what Paul is saying, he's saying that love binds all things together in perfect harmony. What I think Paul is saying is that love in the church is like oil in an engine. When there's love in a church, it runs smoothly. Conflict is resolved, the mission goes forward, Satan has no foothold for division. But a church without love is like an engine without oil. It's only a matter of time before sparks fly and things grind to a halt, right? Love is the oil of our church that lets things keep going. We, we ask for and we extend forgiveness. We overlook offenses. We serve one another. We have compassionate hearts. And that helps us be a strong light in our community. Verse 15, Paul transitions to the second group. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I wish I had time to go through every single one of these passages like I did in the previous list, but if I did that, we would be here until Labor Day, okay? And that's not what you want. You wanna to go to the beach this summer. Okay, so uh, here's a summary of, of what he's saying. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, how does that happen? What produces that kind of behavior? Well, the answer is verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The first way to live out our identity is to put on the love of Christ. The second way is to dwell in the word of Christ, to dwell in the word of Christ. This is number two. When Paul uses the phrase, the word of Christ, he's referring specifically to the gospel, to the rescue story of the scriptures, and also more generally to the scriptures as a whole. You see, when the gospel of Jesus Christ takes root deeply in your heart and the word of God becomes the soundtrack of your life, you will find peace and thanksgiving and worship bubbling up in your life. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Let's talk about peace. How do you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart? How do you just stop being anxious? You ever been there? You're sharing your anxiety with your spouse and they say that super helpful thing, which is like, just stop it. And you're like, thank you so much for your understanding. Have you thought about going into counseling? You know, you'd be great. No, it's not helpful. You're like, I, I don't wanna be, I feel anxious. Like, I heard one pastor, I thought this was really insightful. He said, um, if, if you're not anxious, you should be. He's like, but if you're not at peace, you could be. His point was like, look at the world. It's reasonable to be anxious. Think about all the things that could go wrong that have gone wrong. Think about how chaotic your life is and your health and your relationships, all these things. It's like, how do we have peace when all of those things are right in front of us all the time. And Paul's answer is you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, one among many, many ways that you address anxiety, because there are biological causes of anxiety, but one of the ways that we address anxiety is we replace anxious thoughts with scriptural truth. We replace anxious thoughts with scriptural truth. We can have peace in our hearts, not because we know how this circumstance of our life is going to end, because we don't, but because we know in an ultimate sense how the story ends. We know how the story ends. Um, my son James and I read a book series called The Wingfeather Saga last year. Anybody Wingfeather Saga people out there? Anyway, it's a kid's book. That'd be weird, I guess. Um, and it's awesome. It's, I mean, it's an awesome book. Four, four books, and it follows, a, it follows the story of this, uh, the Igaby family, and they live in this horrible world that like 
everything is dark and everything is broken and evil is winning and the whole thing. And they're trying to survive. And they're trying to resist this, this evil regime. And you get really, I mean, you get really involved. I'm like choking back tears. I'm reading this whole thing. James is like, what's wrong? I'm just like, nothing, it's fine, you know? Um, anyway, so we're reading through and we get to the fourth book and you're like totally engrossed with this family. And the fourth book, guys, is 96 chapters long. It's like, oh my gosh. Anyway, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, it's like all the people that you love and that you want to have do well, do horrible. And like all the people that you hate, you want to be defeated, keep winning. And it's like, it gets darker and darker. And it got like, I almost couldn't keep reading the book. I was like, I can't deal with this anymore. And I was like chapter 80. And I was like, this book is the worst. Um, I was. And the only thing that kept me going, truly, the only thing that kept me going was I knew the turn was coming. Right, because like I know how stories work, the turn has to come, and it felt like it was never going to, but it was like chapter eighty-eight, and the turn came. The turn came, and in some ways, the end was even brighter because the middle had been so dark. And friends, for some of you, that's your life. That's your marriage right now. That's your chronic health problem. It's just getting darker and darker and darker. And it just feels like the worst. And, and what Paul would say is, hey, a turn is coming. It might not be in this life. But one day, Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to judge and cleanse the earth. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. And he's going to welcome you into the marriage supper of the Lamb. You might have to wait for 96 chapters. But one day, the turn is coming. And so when you're filled with anxious thoughts and when you're filled with fear, man, you call to mind the truth of scripture. And you say, I know how the story ends. That's gonna be really dark, but I'm gonna keep believing. I'm gonna keep walking. I'm gonna keep reading because I know that the turn is coming. What about gratitude? Paul says, be thankful. How does the word of Christ help us be thankful? Well, have you ever noticed that gratitude is a matter of perspective, not circumstance? I've told you this before. So I have a friend who lives in Richmond who has a sick house, okay? That's the best way to describe it. It's awesome in every way. It's huge, it's beautiful, it's classy, has this incredible lawn. I'm working on my lawn. Anyway, it's awesome. Every time I go and see him, I come back and I hate my house. It's like, my house is the worst. But then when I remember where I lived in seminary, I'm like, my house is the best. (laughs) You know, it's like the circumstance didn't change. What changed? My perspective changed. Well, when you let the word of God inform your perspective, it cultivates gratitude. Do you know Why? Because it reminds me, reminds me, it reminds you of what you deserve. Can I have a pastoral moment here? You need the wrath of God. You do. I know you don't like it. I don't like it. Our culture hates it. Do you know one of the reasons that our culture is so entitled? Do you know one of the reasons why American Christians are so entitled? Because we've gotten rid of the wrath of God. But when you realize the wrath of God and what it is that I deserve for my sin, it helps you appreciate the grace of God. And you're like, God has forgiven me of so much. And he's made a way for anyone to be forgiven. And not only has he forgiven me, he's brought me into his family and he's given me an eternal inheritance. And I have this incredible thing that awaits me. And you just all of a sudden say, and gratitude, thankfulness, thanksgiving. You see, entitlement in our heart makes us say, I can't believe that I don't have what they have. But gratitude in our heart makes us say, I can't believe all that I do have. And when the word of Christ dwells in us richly and it shapes our perspective and it shapes our worldview, man, thanksgiving is what results. 
So how practically do we let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts? If that's really kind of the answer, if that's kind of where, where all these other things start happening, how do we do it? Well, there are a lot of different ways, um, but Paul points out two in this section. So the first is community, Christian community. So notice that what he wrote, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. See that? So one of the best ways to ingest God's word is with other people. That's what we do here on Sundays. I, I, I'm up here and I'm teaching, I'm admonishing you the, the word of God. That's what we do in our center kids ministry. We're teaching the word of God to the kids. That's what we do in our missional communities. That's what we do in our DNA groups. That's what we do in our college ministries. We're, we're teaching the word of God. So one of the best ways to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly is to, is to get in community with other believers that will help that happen. The second way is through singing. You see that? It's through singing. In verse 16, Paul says, hey, here's how you let the word of God dwell in you. Teach and admonish one another and sing. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, people have debated uh, this verse. Some have argued that it means believers are required to sing each kind of song each Sunday. And there are a lot of godly people throughout history and some people in our church that I love uh, who have argued that. Um, others point out that, that the context Paul is addressing is not how to hold a worship service, but how to get the word of Christ to dwell in your heart. And his emphasis is more on the variety of method than on the strict categories. And I tend to be in that camp. But whatever camp you're in, here's what we can all agree on. You ready? Sing. Sing. Whether it's psalms and hymns or spiritual songs or just what, like, like just, just sing. Guys, Paul only gave us two ways to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and one of them is singing. Are you singing? Are you singing? It's been said that um, songs are sermons you remember. Right? Multiple of you have sent me videos of your children singing the song worthy of it all, and it's beautiful. You know what's never been sent to me? A video of your children dialoguing about my three points. <laughs> if you've got one, send it over. I'd be very encouraged by that. Like, oh no, Jack, I think love of Christ was better than, you know. No, it's just songs are sermons that you remember. Right? It's the word of Christ dwelling in your children. Here's a fun fact. Most of the Colossians were illiterate. And probably none of them had a personal copy of the scriptures in a language that they could understand. Singing was one of the major ways that they learned the word of God. Friends, singing helps us learn the word and singing helps us feel the word. Singing helps us learn the word and singing helps us feel the word. Singing is one of the primary ways that you get the word out of your head and down into your heart. You know what the two ways are that the Bible gives us? Singing and prayer. We make a little bit of a spicy statement here. What are the two things that the American church is the weakest in? Singing and prayer. Why is it the American church is full of churches and people that know a lot of things up here and have very hard hearts? Singing and prayer. When we sing the word of God, it moves down into our hearts and we feel it and it helps us live it out. So are you singing the word? Do you sing with us here on Sundays? Right? Do, do you sing with your kids at night? Do you sing in the car? Right? Are you making use of this means of grace that the Apostle Paul is calling us to make use of? Maybe you don't. In fact, I know a lot of you don't. I won't tell all of you. Okay. But maybe you don't. And um, here's a couple of objections, probably why. Number one, you, you might be here and you might be like, I didn't know it was a big deal, which is fair. You might be like, I didn't know it was a big deal. I just thought it was kind of like an optional thing. Now I do. I'll start singing. Great. We've got a song coming up in like three minutes, okay? It's gonna be great. <laughs> I shouldn't have said three minutes. It might be more like five. Now you're like, you got three minutes, Josh. All right, that might be you. Um, some of you are afraid that you're gonna sound bad. Have any of you ever sat near me 
right? The command is make a joyful noise. It is not to make a beautiful one, okay? God, you know, he's happy that you're singing, okay? Um, another one, and this is close to home, is, and I feel this, uh, some of you don't sing because you're afraid other people will hear you, and you're afraid that, like, what are they gonna think? They're gonna think I look dumb. And I would just tell you, I get that, I feel that too, but I would just tell you, if that's what you're feeling, you need to sing even more because you need to be reminded that it's not about all the people next to you and what they think, it's about Christ. And you're adopted and you are cherished and you are loved by him. So I wanna invite you to sing. I wanna invite you to sing. One of the the beautiful things about Christianity is that Christianity, unlike any other world religion, is a singing faith. Do you know that? Do you know that most world religions don't have a lot of singing? Like they have some chanting and a couple things, but they're not anywhere close to the historic church, the amount of songs and hymnals that, the, that just the church throughout history has produced. I mean, just, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs have been written and sung throughout the ages. You know that song, Be Thou My Vision, that we sing sometimes? That was written a thousand years ago. Isn't that amazing? Man, just because for all of, all of time, believers have been a singing people. Why is that? because Christianity at its core is a religion of joy and joyful people sing. So sing, so sing. Now the danger of a sermon like this is that I spent the first 10 minutes talking about your identity in Christ, but I've spent the next 30 minutes talking about all the things that you're bad at, right? And I know that what can happen is you can walk out of here feeling beat up. Like I just, and I'm so bad at everything, I have nothing to do. And one of the things that's really important for you if you're gonna grow in following Jesus is you've gotta learn to hold together two things at the same time. On the one hand, you've gotta remember that in Christ, your position with God is secure and fixed. It doesn't change. And at the same time, you're called to partner with the Holy Spirit to practically live out what's already true of you. But you're gonna fail at this one. You're gonna fail at this one. And in that moment, some of you are gonna be tempted to be like, God could never love me. He could never love me. Can I be really honest with you? I don't struggle with that. When I fail, I don't ever think God doesn't love me. I don't have a hard time being like, yes, I'm saved, I'm positionally saved, and I'm a work in progress. I just, it's not like an existential challenge for me. And I was thinking about that this week, and I was like, why is that? Because I know for some of you, that's very difficult, and you tell me that. And I think it's because for decades, godly men and women have been investing the word of God into me. And so when I fail, and I do, and I feel Satan condemning me, I'm just usually like, Romans 8, 1, man. Like, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is God who justifies who is it that condemns. Back off me. But that's just like decades of like godly men and women putting the word of God into me so that that when I fail, I don't despair, but I just kind of fall back on my identity. I'm like, all right, let's get back after this thing. That's what I want for you. And I want, I want this sermon, I want our songs, I want the ministry of this church to help you know deep in your heart that you are chosen and that you are holy, and that you are beloved, not because of anything that you do, but because of what Christ has done. And then I want that identity to fuel your practical holiness. And then when you fail in your practical holiness, I want you to rebound back to your identity and remember, this hasn't made any difference in my identity, and I want that to fuel gratitude and grace that drives you back to your practical holiness. That's what I want. And it reminds me of um, the writer of Amazing Grace, a guy named John Newton. You've probably heard the song Amazing Grace. You may not know a lot about the, the writer, So John Newton wrote Amazing Grace um, after spending a lifetime as the captain of a slave ship. So when he wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the song, the sound that saved a wretch like me, he wasn't exaggerating. I mean, he was a horrible person. He was a horrible person. But then God chose him. I guess God had already chosen him. 
and God saved him and God raised him to life in Christ and God changed him. And so for the rest of his life, Newton strived to become practically what God had made him positionally. And when he was in his 80s, he wrote a letter to a young pastor that I read. And he said, you know, by this point in my life, I thought that I'd be further along. He's like, I thought I'd be less irritable, but I actually find that I'm more irritable. He said, I thought I'd be more patient, but I find that I'm less patient. He said, I thought I'd be over the lust of the flesh, but they're stronger than ever. And he said, at first, this really discouraged me. He said, until the Holy Spirit of God helped me understand what was happening. He said, my view of God's holiness was growing. And as my view of God's holiness grew, my awareness of my own sin grew. And he said, as my view of God's holiness got bigger and my view of my own sin got bigger, the cross also got bigger. And it fueled my worship and it fueled my gratitude and it fueled my thanksgiving. And this is how he ended the letter. In my many years of following Christ, this is what I've concluded. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. I want you to feel that. And one of the ways we feel that is through communion. We're gonna have a chance to take communion today. We're gonna join with the historic church over 2,000 years. And when we take communion, what we're doing is we're taking a physical substance that represents the word of Christ dwelling within us. When we take the bread, we remember this bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for me. Not because you were doing great. It wasn't broken for you after you performed really well. It was broken for you before you did anything. And this cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for me so that I might be forgiven of my sins. So that though my sins were like scarlet, they might be made white as snow. So what we're gonna do is, I mean, we're gonna sing a final song. Our band's gonna lead us. And during that time, our usher's gonna come down and just kind of dismiss row by row. And I wanna encourage you to remember when you take the elements of your identity in Jesus, chosen, holy, beloved. And I wanna, I wanna encourage you to let that reality drive gratefulness and drive obedience. So if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, be encouraged by communion. It's a reminder that you know how the story ends. One day we will be with him at the marriage supper of the lamb and every tear and every evil will be wiped away. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, then please don't take communion. It'd be inappropriate for you to take the symbol before taking the substance. So my encouragement to you would be to take Christ and the next time we have communion, take communion with us. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing and we're gonna take communion together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you saved me and you saved every one of your people out of sin and into your family. Lord, would you help us to hold together that truth that in Christ that we are chosen and holy and beloved. And I pray that that would fuel us in our pursuit of holiness. God, as we sing and as we take communion, would you minister to our hearts and help us to believe that we are loved by you. Amen. Would you stand with me?